Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. So first brand, you two, that had an impact in your life that you remember as a kid. I was a baseball player my whole life. I vividly remember getting my first Easton baseball bat, aluminum bat. And it was a really big deal. It cost a lot of money. My parents bought it. So that's the first one that jumps to mind. First brand for you, Rick. You know, for the one that I thought of um, right away is uh, Ralph Lauren polo because I so wanted a Ralph Lauren shirt when I was younger and we couldn't afford it. So I just aspired to have that, like, guy on a horse and my shirt for some reason. And I think that's kind of the power of brand. It was, a whole, it was much bigger than just that logo. My dad called that the trick pony when I was a kid. Trick pony. Because it turns a $10 polo into a $100 polo. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. This is a very special edition of the CMO Podcast. First, we are in Dallas, Texas, at Deloitte University, the Leadership Center. This is an 800-bed facility totally devoted to training Deloitte leaders and sometimes bringing their clients into the next-gen CMO Academy, where 50 senior marketing leaders are coming together to learn, develop, and evolve their leadership skills. What you are about to hear is the kickoff of Deloitte University in Dallas, Texas. I have two guests today, Jeff Jones, who is the CEO of H&R Block, and Rick Gomez, who is the CMO of Target. What's interesting about this interview is that Rick and Jeff were both CMOs of Target. Rick succeeded Jeff. Here's the discussion with Jeff and Rick in front of a live audience. So what's the brand awareness in the room of H&R Block? Everyone who's aware of it, raise your hand. Okay, brand awareness of Target. Okay. Don't ask about usage of those two. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting to that. <laughs> How many are customers of H&R Block? How, how about Target? You have some conquests to do today. I do. <laughs> One at a time. Super. So, hey, um, welcome, by the way. And this is the kickoff to a wonderful program. Rick was here in the inaugural year five years ago, so he wasn't yet CMO at Target. So I think I want to turn to Rick right now. 
did this have anything to do with you getting promoted? <laughs> Can we make a claim here? Make a claim. Um, no, it was, uh, yeah, it was five years ago. Uh, Jeff had nominated me to attend the program, and I had aspirations to be a CMO someday. I didn't know when or where. And uh, this program was awesome. It was a great chance to meet people who were in the same shoes that I was in. And there's um, that camaraderie, I think, is really special. Super. Okay. Now, we heard up front that 95% of you are not confident, right? Is that what I got? So I want to ask you a question right now. Why aren't CMOs more confident? Shout it out. Why? It's a hard job. Good. What else? <laughs> Take risk. What else? Business and sales leadership don't value it in some companies. Yes, I agree with that. Not black, nothing's black and white, right? Everything's in the gray area. What? Everyone thinks they're a marketer. I'm glad you said that. Absolutely. They think it's arts and crafts? No science. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, first one's to be blamed, and sometimes you're accountable, sometimes mm -hmm. not, right? Anything else? Speed of change. So we're going to solve all that this week. <laughs> and we're going to start right now. So listen, the flow of this is going to be, I'm going to ask them some questions, you know, get them started. I'm going to turn to you. So think about some things you might want to ask them. I'll probably come back to the stage, ask them a few more things, then come back to you. And we're going to do this all in about 50 minutes or so. So listen, I'm going to start with a rapid fire, so you get to know them a bit more. Then we'll go a little bit deeper into their careers. And for the B2B people in the room, we're sorry, we're B2C up here, although 95% of P&G products are sold to businesses. So, but the principles we talk about today, I think, are um, evergreen for any, anyone who serves customers. So Super Bowl 2020 is just behind us. And Jeff, you live and work in Kansas City. What the hell was that like? Awesome. Okay, <laughs> good. Anything. Did you go to the parade? I was close to the parade. I did uh -huh. not go to the parade, but I was, I was there in spirit. I mean, it was an incredible moment for the city, 50 years. All the history with the Hunt family. So win the Lamar Hunt trophy as AFC champions. Lamar Hunt coined the phrase Super Bowl. So there's all these really cool Kansas Great City branding. connections. It was an amazing, amazing time. Yeah. So did either of you watch the ads, and do you have a favorite? I was watching more of the game. Okay. Uh, was not a good ad participant this year. Yeah. I, I did I watch. I hope you have a better answer than that. <laughs> no, I did watch. Um, and to, to me, I actually think the winner of the Super Bowl was diversity and inclusion. The fact that the halftime show was two Latinas, 40, or 40 plus moms. There were eight LGBTQ plus ads during, um, during the game. There were two drag queens. There was a same-sex couple with Ellen and Portia. Um, I thought the days of the sophomoric kind of juvenile humor are over, and it just felt way more progressive to me. And I felt like that was a win for marketing and advertising in general. Cool. It was a great body of work this year. Yeah. Is there one that stood out for you, personally? I mean, I, I, um, I like the Google ad. I mean, yeah. Loretta's yeah. It was amazing. I, th I think the ability to take technology and humanity and bring that together in a really special way was powerful. How are you feeling today? One word. Lucky. Okay, good. Grateful. Grateful, beautiful, super. I'm feeling loving, how's that? Full <laughs> of emotion. So is there a brand besides your own that if it went away you would really miss? I mean, every piece of technology I use is Apple. 
phone, AirPods, iPad. We were just talking about the AirPods notebook. at lunch. Yeah. I mean, the whole yeah. ecosystem, Apple TV at home, if they made a TV, I would hang on the wall. It's, I mean, I think Apple for me. Yeah. I would say Netflix. Netflix. What are you watching now? Um, you know what I'm watching is just really good, and it doesn't sound good, but it's really good, is Cheer. Oh my gosh. It's so good. And it's, it, it's, it's, it's not about cheerleading. It's about how sports can help you overcome adversity. That it's about teamwork, crazy. leadership, coaching. It's so inspiring. Watch it. Wow. So good. Jeff, what about you? What are you watching? I, I, not cheer, but not I, cheer. Did, I did just watch an episode with my wife and teenage daughter, and I couldn't believe it is intense. It's intense. Yeah, way more intense than I expected. Yeah. Watch the whole thing. I'll have to watch the whole so thing. So the best part of living in the Midwest, you both live in the Midwest, one in Kansas City, one in Minneapolis. What's the best part? How many Midwesterners, Midwesterners in the room? Okay, good. Right. good There's point. at least one Kansas City person in the room, too. Lockton? Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Awesome. I would say the people. I would add the welcoming, welcoming nature of the people. I found it in Kansas City to be really incredible. Yeah. One habit you both have to stay close to your customers? Get in the field. Um, I'm out, and that's one of the reasons I'm in Dallas, just on the road, in offices, with customers, in our call center, listening to what they're saying, just as, as much as possible, get great feedback. So you have 10,000 stores, right? Yes. How do you decide where to go? You know, it's funny, I, I, other than a place like Dallas, which I could combine with this, I generally go to places that they don't expect me to go. Uh, you know, I was in Minot, North Dakota last week. I was in Quincy, Illinois last week. So I try to get to towns where it's really happening. The community's built around H&R Block. I'm not going to a lot of major cities. Yeah. Rick, one habit you have. Um, I would agree. So like going into stores, shopping, being seeing it kind of um, really all over the country is critical. But I would say in addition to that, we do pretty deep um, consumer immersions, what we call them guest immersions, because we refer to our, our consumer as our guest. And we'll spend a lot of time going to somebody's house and literally spending four hours with them talking about a particular topic. So I have been through um, pantries talking about food. I've been through beauty bags talking about beauty products. I've gone through closets talking about apparel. Um, you know, I've spent time with new moms and what it's like to have a new baby. And four hours sounds like a long time, but it really gives you a chance to kind of dig deep and really understand what are the motivations, um, and what are the concerns, what are the pain points. And I think um, that's, what, that's kind of what helps me keep in touch. It's also inspiring, right? Yeah. yeah you hear yeah, people's yeah. stories and you see the role your brand plays in their life. It's inspiring, but when we, I will tell you, when we, we do it, we don't say we're from Target. Mm. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit about um, retailers. And sometimes it can be really encouraging and sometimes it's not. I mean, mm -hmm. you hear very directly what we're not delivering on. And that's, um, I think it, that honesty and that is, can be tough sometimes, but it's helpful. So one habit you use to stay close to your teams, your internal team that you work with most closely. I mean, we prioritize being a team. As simple as that sounds, I mean, we, we talk about teamwork, we have everything down to the operating norms of how we want to show up together as a team. I mean, we work on being a team together, uh, don't just take it for granted. Do you make that explicit, your operating norms, your yes. principles? Yes. Every member of the leadership team has, uh, has, well, as a new person, you select your team and make sure you're surrounded by the right people. But everyone has been through more assessment than they'd ever known existed. Everyone has development plans. 
that I ask them to share with their entire team so everyone knows what all of us are working on. Uh, we wrote leadership expectations for what does it mean to be a member of this team. And then the operating norms about how we want to show up together, very intentional. Yeah. Rick, how about you, one habit? Um, one habit. Um, one thing I'm excited about is we just started doing what we call family dinner. And it's a chance for people of color on the marketing, digital, and strategy team to get together to have dinner. And it's, um, there's no agenda, there's no um, topics. It's literally just, we do it, um, we have a space at Target where we have a buffet and people just hang out and talk. And the intent is to facilitate networking, which is a big opportunity for us, particularly with people of color in the Twin Cities. Um, and I was just so surprised at how it took off. People love the opportunity to create connections and to just talk informally about what's on their mind. Um, and it's, it's now become a tradition. I'll tell you a funny story, Jim. In our headquarters, we have a cafeteria, and when I first showed up, I would go to the cafeteria and just pop down at a table with people and just start asking questions and learning. And about six months later, someone said, well, do they think that's funny? So well, I don't know, they seem to go pretty well. You know, we just start talking. And this person said, you know it's a public cafeteria. I was like, no, I did not know it was a public cafeteria. <laughs> I instantly had this panic that I had been walking down to the cafeteria in our building and sitting down with people that don't work for H&R Block, <laughs> asking them work questions. I literally started panicking. So I, I was trying to get to know the team, and I could have been talking to total strangers that had just popped by for lunch. It's crazy. So we have a really special twosome up here because I think you got this in the introduction, but Jeff was the CMO of Target before Rick. So Rick followed Jeff. So you have two previous CMOs of the same company. So I'd just like to think about that as you think about your questions. I would like you two to comment on each other. <laughs> One surprising insight, characteristic story about each other that you think is interesting and says a lot about the human being and the leader. You go first. Oh, and I didn't prep them for this. <laughs> um, okay, boss. Um, <laughs> no, no. Gosh. Um, <clears throat> it's making you nervous. I know. I am What's nervous. Happening? I don't know. Um, no, I mean, there's a lot of stories. I'm, I, I'm trying <laughs> to think about which one. I, I guess what I would say about Jeff and working for him um, is Jeff is, a, is um, I think, the kind of boss that you want and that he's very clear. He's very direct, he's very predictable, and so you know exactly where he stands. And I find that to be, um, you know, talk about the need for confidence. I think if you want to be a confident in your role, understanding where your boss is coming from, understanding what's important to them, understanding what are the problems to be solved, that gives you confidence. And I think um, because Jeff was so clear about that, um, it gave me confidence then to go do my job, and I think that's the kind of person you want to work for. Thank you. That's awesome. I mean, I, I, I feel lucky, as I said, to be here. I mean, it's pretty incredible to think that however many years ago we recruited you to come to the company hoping you could be my successor. I left Target maybe earlier than I thought I would to go on to try something else, but to watch how Rick has stepped into the new job and not just stepped into the job, but has killed it right, in the new right. job. And it's taken on more 
and has expanded the scope and influence of what marketing really means at the company is incredible. And Target's already a company that fundamentally believes marketing matters. So I don't think you ever really have that fight, day-to-day um, -day maybe, but I know that, that Rick has taken a function that's incredibly well-regarded and because of his business acumen and his, and his focus on growth in the customer, has just taken the function to an entirely new level. Uh, and that, I think, makes me proud and it's, it's awesome to be here with you today. Yeah. It's a love-in. <laughs> can, I share story, can I share a story about sure, that though? Yeah. Because the way it played out, and <clears throat> I don't know, you, you, I, I was in your shoes as a senior vice president. I had wanted to become a CMO really badly, and that was sort of my goal. And um, when Jeff left, um, the role was open, and I kind of raised my hand. I really want to do this. I really want to do this. And I, I think um, what happens oftentimes is. Um, and, and it's appropriate, I think. The CEO, the board, the C-suite will say, great, we'll put you on a short list. We want to do an external search too. And so you go through this period of about six months where you're kind of under the microscope trying to show that you can do it, but you're not really in that role. And then you're being evaluated to all the candidates that are coming through. It, it would, I would say, probably the most stressful right. time in my that. career ever. Um, and, you know, this is a little bit of background. I come from a, a Latino family. We're very tight. Um, there are lots of opinions. Um, so I got lots of advice on how to show up during those six months um, from my mom, from my dad. And then every time I had an interview, my dad would tell me what, you know, this is what you need to say. Don't say this. Make sure you highlight this. Um, and I remember in January, Brian Cornell, our CEO, called me into his office and he said, you know, being the CEO, is sometimes it's not that easy, but sometimes I have really good days. And he's like, today's a really good day because I get to offer you the CMO job. Mm -hmm. And the first person that I called was my dad. And I, I said, dad, um, got some news. I got the CMO job. And he was really quiet. And then he started crying. And I was like, Dad, you know, what are you crying? This is good news. And he's like, well, I just didn't think we were going to get it. <laughs> we. <laughs> and it's we. It is a great it team. It is very yeah, we. Yeah. So I always share that story because I think um, it never, it's never as smooth as like, and then I just deceived, I took the role after Jeff. There is a process that you go through, and I'm sure a lot of you will realize that. Yeah. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. That's a sweet story. You know, I just finished Bob Iger's book last night. I didn't realize how contentious it was to name him Disney CEO. Mm. I mean, it was torturous. So, you know, it's never, right. it's never easy. It's never easy. And he really wanted to be the CEO, but a lot of the board didn't want him to be that. So anyway, it's a, it's a good book, by the way. I highly recommend it on leadership and decision making. Hey, listen, guys, I, I want to flip into your career a bit. And uh, you heard a bit about their careers in the intro. But Jeff, listen to this. He started at Leo Burnett, right, a global ad agency. On P&G. On PNG, good for you. Yeah, <laughs> we trained you well. <laughs> no, anyway, Leo Burnett years ago, and then Coke, Gap, Target, 
Uber briefly, and now H&R Block. Interesting career paths. So of that interesting career path, I want you to pick out a single defining experience that shaped you as the leader you are today. And it's coming for you next. Okay. I mean, it, it, this might not be an intuitive, but the my decision to leave Uber. Mm. I mean, I think it was the... So for those of you that, that don't know the story, I left Target to go to Uber as president. And after seven months, faced a really important ethical decision about my values with the company relative to how the company was being run and what I was able to do, and I left. And I think leadership, you know, is such a vague thought many times, but if you're not good at leading yourself, it's hard to lead others. And that was the first moment in my career where I knew that I was in the wrong place, but I hadn't been there very long. You just can't quit, right? Um, and so all of the emotion that went into that decision, and I really reflected back on a couple things. One, I teach my teenage daughters in life, in the end, you really only have two things, your reputation and your relationships. That's weighing. And then something I've said to my teams for a long time, job security is knowing you're good enough to get another job. And so I made the leap. But I think that as a leadership moment for myself to really reflect on what do you believe in? What do you stand for? What do you know to be true about yourself? and then have to make a really hard decision seven months after you've made a, another hard decision to leave an incredible company. So you left without H&R Block going right? You didn't go directly? No, no, I left without a job, yeah. So how did you decide on H&R Block? You know, what was it about that company? And the yeah, I mean, first of all, I thought for sure I'd stay in Silicon Valley. Uh, I've told the, the story many times, but when I first got the call, I said, I have a really common name. Are you sure you called the right Jeff Jones? <laughs> <laughs> it just was so far out of my zip code in terms yeah. of anything I was thinking about. And a long story very short, I really fell in love with the purpose, uh, which needed to be reignited, but it is a company that's focused on helping people. And I've said many times, it's the only job I've had in my career where I wasn't trying to convince people to buy something they didn't need. So the purpose was very clear, but as I said many times, we faced a crisis of relevance, not a financial or economic crisis, and the mandate from the board was total transformation. And so the combination of those three things, I said, you know, I want to go try and do this. And you've been there about? About two years. Two years, okay. yeah. So Rick, Pepsi, <clears throat> Miller Coors, Target, some others. So what in your rich career path was a single most defining experience for you? Maybe it's just because it's top of mind for me, but I, I think um, that first year, first 18 months as CMO at Target was defining for me. And um, you know, you, you kind of convince yourself, I want that job, I can do that job. You show up for the interviews, you're selling, you're selling, you're selling. Um, and then when you get it, there is a moment of like, holy shit, I'm actually gonna <laughs> do this job. And it's, um, you know, it's a marketing job at scale. It's 3,000 marketers um, and just a, across a, lots of different categories, um, an iconic brand. And there had been so many great CMOs that had come before. And so you, you just don't want to mess it up. Um, and so I think for me, you know, talk about confidence again. I, 
I, I did not have confidence that first 12 to 18 months. Um, and it was a roll up your sleeves and I'm going to figure this thing out. Um, and it, it was a bit of a make or break, I think, for me. And coming out on the other end of that, I have um, a lot more confidence. And I think I've grown not so much as a marketer, ironically, but I think I've grown as a leader. Um, and, um, you know, this experience, it's, it's been pivotal, pivotal, pivotal for me. You were in the company and were promoted in place, so you didn't come in from the outside. How did you reframe yourself? How did you choose where you'd spend your time? How did you choose your priorities? How did your presence kind of shift? Can you talk a bit about that? Sure. And that's a challenging one because all of a sudden you're now leading your peers. Your peers now report to you. Um, and my peer set at Target are all very accomplished marketers who have a great track record. Um, and so I think for me it was about um, really understanding for each one of them where they were coming from and what I could do to help them uh, do what they want to do. And for each one of them, I think of our chief creative officer, I think of our head of media, I think our head of strategy, insights. They're all very different people, very different backgrounds with very different needs. And so my opportunity was to show them that I could help them. And so that was the pivot for me. It wasn't about more gravitas or more command, or it was actually about empathy. And it was about showing up in a way that I could say, I can help them be better at what they're doing. Um, and that, that they responded well to that. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I was appointed P&G CMO, I had a, a, a web conference, which wasn't that common back in those days, with every marketing employee in the world. And I basically said to them, we've lost our way. I don't have the answers. We all joined this company for a reason. And I asked them for that reason. They all told me, then I said, <laughs> our aspiration is to be the best brand building company in the world. And we're nowhere close. We all know that. So I need your ideas. I don't have them. And, and from that, that, mm -hmm. that right. 90 seconds set my agenda for seven years. Yeah, yeah. Well, what you I had did, all the ideas I needed from them. What you did in that moment is, and which I think leaders do, is they define what the problem is, and then they get out of the way, yeah. you know? And- Channel um, the energy. Yep. Simplify and like clearly articulate the challenge. I think it's a tricky thing. The more that people <clears throat> turn to you for answers, the more your job is to not have all the answers, mm -hmm. which is a weird way to think about it. But I think increasingly you, it's more about the questions you're asking, the space you're creating. And at times when you've got to lean in and call the ball, as we say, and make the decision, but more and more that model of leadership just doesn't work. It doesn't work also, I think, because um, as you continue to grow and you take on bigger and bigger right. jobs, broader and broader responsibility, you just can't have the answers. That's right. I mean, I'm not an expert in digital. I'm not an expert in strategy or insights or marketing. I mean, I'm, I'm okay a little bit across the board, but I don't have the answers to all that stuff. That's right. And if you want to continue to grow and excel and take on more, you have to be able to let go of not having the answers. Yeah, which goes back to confidence. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So there are four issues I want to talk about with these guys, but I'm going to take a pause and go to you. So we have about a half hour left in this nice session. So I'm going to go to you for a few questions and come back up here and get them riffing on four big issues that we talked about before the panel. Hi, Rick. I'm Carolyn Mueller from Disney. And one of the questions I have for you is, as you talk about your large marketing organization, how do you get them to work cross-function with each other? Mm -hmm. I think it's a great question. And it's, um, 
it's a really relevant question for Target. Historically, Target is a big company, and the way you got things done was in your silo. And it was very much, you kind of had your little area, and you got stuff done in your area. And what's happened more and more, the challenges, the problems, the opportunities that we want to solve span across multiple disciplines. And I would say they're even broader than just across marketing. Marketing needs to partner much more closely with stores, much more closely with supply chain, with our merchants. Um, and it's something that we talk a lot about. Um, I think, one, leaders have to model it. That means I have to model collaboration across the C-suite. I can't expect my team to be working cross-functionally if I'm not building those relationships horizontally. So I spend a lot of time doing that. Um, and I think the second thing is, a and I said this a little bit before, a clear articulation of what the problem is. I find oftentimes people uh, cross-functionally aren't, um, there's tension, there's conflict, because they're not trying to solve the same thing. And I think if people would just pause for a minute, get aligned on what is the brief, what is the problem we're trying to solve, then I think um, you're, you're, it's much easier to get alignment. I agree. <laughs> Hi, thanks for uh, uh, talking to us. I'm Dan McAvoy from JLL. Um, my question is for you. Um, as someone who has gone from a CMO position to a CEO position, can you please make the argument for why CMOs are best positioned to be CEOs? <laughs> <laughs> uh, gladly, gladly, <laughs> gladly. You know, it's funny. It, I, I get asked that question a lot. And frankly, I think it's true. Um, and especially in the way that you all are thinking about what the role of marketing is. And more and more, it is a growth champion. It's customer focused. I mean, the things that any CEO has to think about on a daily basis really does align nicely with what the CMO is increasingly taking on. Uh, so I, I, I speak that word whenever I can, mm -hmm. for sure. Mallory Maddox with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Nebraska. And before I came here, I told my family that you were both speaking and they want me to say thank you. They've spent a lot of money at Target. So thank you for your great, they said thank we're the marketer's dream. We appreciate that. Great. You both have spoke a lot about leadership. What's the best compliment you've ever been given? I mean, I think the, the thing I take as the best compliment was how often people say how open and authentic and transparent I am which I think is uh, something I, I, I practice and, and really intentionally try to do. I just find that great people do their best when they know the truth. And um, if you don't know the answer, say you don't know the answer, don't make up some bullshit spin. Or if you can't tell the answer, say I can't share that because of the reason. I, and I hear that all the time. People are surprised. And I think that's how it normally comes out is, well, I was surprised how open you were. Uh, and I take that as a great compliment. Um, again, I'm sharing this because it's top of mind because it's something that happened last week. Uh, I'm part of a mentoring program. And I've met with this um, with mentee a couple times. And we were at a conference last week. And they asked the mentees to talk about their mentor and what was the one thing they've done that they appreciate. And what she said was, it wasn't one thing I did. It was one thing I didn't do. And that was whenever I met with her, I didn't have my phone out in front. And I, I gave her my undivided attention. And what she took away from that is she deserves that. And so she should make sure that when she's talking and when she's presenting, people give her the undivided attention. And then she should do the same for others. That's great. And I think too often, two times, we are multitasking. And I think it's just not, it's not fair to the, to the ones that are spent all this time to present. That's a good question. Thank you.
uh, Rob Sundy from Whirlpool. I'm wondering if yeah, this is working. Um, first of all, thank you for your time and kind of building off of that. I'm assuming time is one of your most important assets. I would love to understand what are some rituals that you do to kind of balance the daily operations around your businesses as well as thinking towards the future. You go first. Go ahead. Um, uh, first of all, I'm ruthless about everything I do with my time. And I, I did something when I first joined in this role. Harvard sponsored a program for first-time public CEOs, which, which I'm one. And part of that was benchmarking of how you spend your time. So for six months, I tracked my life in 15-minute increments for 24 hours a day. And then was able to compare that against a set of people in similar roles. And I learned a lot. Um, and I used that to really get even more focused on how I spend my time. I will tell you, I going back to the open thing, I make myself more available to others than people say I should. And what I mean by that is taking a call with a friend or serving as a mentor or talking to a class of students, things that people say, well, you're not using your time wisely, but I just disagree. So I'm willing to take the personal sacrifice on time as a way to give to others. Um, but it is definitely a personal sacrifice. And I think when you gain the clarity about how you're spending your time, it opens up a lot of windows into what you could do different. No, I, I mean, I don't have this one figured out, I'll be honest. Um, but what, what I would say is, at least for me, there are a few kind of emerging principles, is I guess how I would describe it. Um, one is, um, in order for me to feel good and show up at my best, I need to work out, and that's really important. Um, and so even when I'm traveling, I make sure to sign up for SoulCycle or for Berries or for whatever it is, and I will wedge it in between meetings because I know that's important to me, and I will show up as a better leader, as a better um, person if I do that. That's kind of one thing I would say it's really important to me. Um, the other thing that I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of evolving a little bit was um, this idea of work versus personal and, and how to balance the two. And for me right now in my life, what works for me is I completely merge it. So when I travel, um, you know, I was just in LA uh, this past weekend for some work stuff. I made a point to have lunch with a friend of mine. Did you go to the Academy Award? Does that work stuff? It's, we, had, we had an activation the night before. Um, we don't do that at Block. <laughs> I was just trying to slide that through. You, <laughs> I got it. Um, but, but for me, it all blurs. And um, I find myself spending more time with the people that I enjoy spending time with from a work perspective as well. And I'm okay with that blurring as long as I get that personal stuff in, in, in um, uh, scheduled. Otherwise, I feel like I'm being taken advantage of. And then the last thing that I would say that I'm still working on is I used to have a perspective that I would spend my time on things that were broken. So, you know, when, when I came into this role, one of the things we, de we really needed was a new loyalty program. Um, and that was a huge amount of my focus was is launching Circuit, Circle, which we just launched this past year. Um, but actually, I'm, I think, and I think that was good, and I think when you do focus on what's broken, I actually think you are able to have impact. Um, but the challenge for me now, I think, is how do I think about not just what's broken, but how do I think about Horizon 2 and Horizon 3 and what those opportunities are? 
Horizon One is the team's got it. So I want to be able to balance my time a little better between fixing the stuff that's not working and then thinking about the Horizon Three stuff that's out there. One thought to build on what Jeff said: When I was a kid at PNG, we had Stephen Covey come in, and this whole thing about think about the roles in your life, and every Sunday night. Think about that week and the roles you have and the goals. So you're a dad, you're a husband, you're a business leader, you're a team leader, you're a church member, whatever it might be. You might have five, six, ten roles, but don't forget any of them. And make a goal or two for each one for that week. And look at that every day. So, and I think that centers you, uh, keeps you on track, keeps your North Star there. It's an old lesson, but one that I think is timeless. We talked a lot about four issues that are on our minds. And we're gonna talk about all of these during the week. And I wanna get their perspective on these four issues. So as Deloitte was planning for this and looking at their research and, and looking at what you're wrestling with in the room, here are the four things that will be part of our dialogue this week. One is, how do you challenge orthodoxy? How do you challenge the status quo? We all say that. It's hard and it's risky, that's one. Second, Diversity and inclusion. Rick's already talked about this, right? But the best creative organizations are inclusive and diverse, and we're not fast enough at building them. Third, improving the value of marketing within the C-suite, building confidence, and communicating that to your peers and outside the C-suite. And the last one is, we were talking at lunch today, it seems everything we do is polarized. Everything is political. So how do you respond these days as marketers in this environment? How do you respond to external challenges which seem relentless? Easy issues. <laughs> so I'm gonna ask my two friends here to pick one of those and to share a story, a lesson, a piece of advice, and an area you're passionate about from those four areas we just talked about. Who wants to start? Start. Um, I thought what I would talk a little bit about is just the idea, and it spans across those, to be honest okay. with you, but the idea of inclusivity, and it's part of reputation, and it's part of diversity and inclusion, and it's part of, um, I think, great marketing, um, and it's a big part of what the target brand stands for, is about accessibility, optimism, approachability, affordability, um, and we often talk about D&I, and when, when should a brand... Um, make a statement about something and when should they be you know advocating for a particular point of view and we've gone through I would say a huge learning curve on when and how and at what time does Target show up and in what kind of conversations um, and it's been trial by error I would say we've had some where we shouldn't have been involved in the conversation and we were um, and maybe we've had some where we should have been more vocal quicker and we weren't um, but I will tell you uh, when we're debating when we show up and how we show up, our North Star is our purpose. And we go through the filter of, is this about bringing joy to all families? And that's what our purpose is all about. Um, and then two, what does our guests think about it? And that's sort of the two critical filters that we use. And I think with those filters, we've said, you know, there's some DNI um, issues, opportunities, challenges we're just not going to talk about. But there are others that we believe we should be at the forefront of. And I'll give you an example, body inclusivity is something that we really believe in. Um, we are one of the first mass retailers to have mannequins that go from size four to size 22. 
Um, we believe that, you know, that's bringing joy, making people feel like they belong. Uh, this past Halloween, we launched Halloween costumes that were done um, for kids in wheelchairs. So we actually have the wheelchair converts into a pirate ship, and there's a pirate costume. We have another one where the wheelchair converts into a carriage, and there's a princess costume. Um, that is bringing joy to kids um, who might not otherwise feel comfortable on Halloween. This spring, we're launching our swimsuit line, and we'll have a line of swimwear for women, women who've had a mastectomy. And that's bringing joy. That's letting people do what they want to do. And, and those are the kinds of things that I think are inclusivity that is about who we are. And so when the world is kind of as divisive and as complicated, and there's so many points of view on so many different things on social media, we, we come back to when is it appropriate for us to show up and how do we show up? Um, and those are the kinds of things that we stand for. And I'll tell you the thing that I'm most proud of, those ideas I just talked about, they're relatively small business ideas. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not the 80% of what we're selling, right. but it's so important to our brand, which stands for inclusivity, and it's really, really important to our team members. When I talk about those stories and we share those stories about what the designers are creating, everybody in the audience will nod and like, I'm so proud to be a part of Target. And that's a big part of what the CMO does is get people to feel proud about working at Target. So that's just kind of how we're thinking about DNI. I mean, obviously, there's a whole other part of it as far as culture and representation and retention, and we go on and on about that. But I, I do think it's um, when to show up, on what kinds of issues, and how you show up is really dependent not on what the CMO's point of view is, but what the brand's purpose is. Well said. Yeah. Jeff, pick one. What? what I mean, I, I could build on that one, but I think the third one that you mentioned is is really important to me. You know, as the value a, of marketing and the, the value story. of marketing. You know, it's been something that you know when I rewind a long time ago, I, it's probably been fifteen years ago, may, maybe twelve years ago. I wrote a piece in Ad Age saying the function of marketing needs a CMO. All about how do you reposition what the function's all about because of this lack of confidence and lack of belief in value creation. So it's been a topic that I think has been around for a long, long time, and I've just been fascinated by why. And I will tell you, it seems like, and you all know this from your companies and your roles, but there's always a belief early in your career that the higher up you get, the more it's figured out. <laughs> and there is no curtain you get behind where all the answers are, right? And so I think what you realize, the higher up you get, the more questions there are. And so nobody should have more or less confidence in any of you. The problems we all have to solve are harder than ever. Everything today needs to be a combination of data and insight. One by itself is never enough. Um, all of your peers, no matter what function they're in, may be more confident but don't have any more answers than you do. And so I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this topic because there's, I think there's something, this is a stereotype, but I think there's something about the people that generally are attracted to marketing that somehow just naturally have more humility, more empathy, and are not the kind of people who generally show up pounding the table with confidence. I think as a result of that, there are perceptions and stereotypes of the function that build that just aren't true. And so this whole topic, whether I was a CMO or now a CEO, you know, when I hired a CMO recently, 
I was looking for a growth partner. But I think even more than that, I was looking for someone that had the confidence to know I had a high standard for the function, but didn't want to do the job. And I defend him with our CM or with our CFO all the time. But this topic, I, I, I'd love to hear the questions that you know that that are on your mind about it. I just think this is an incredible route to whatever the next job is, and not everyone wants to be a CEO or or whatever that is. But you're just in such great positions to do it. You know, I just see that in, in, in so many companies. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. Let me ask your perspective, both of you, on one we did not talk about. You're both leaders who, you know, the audience can tell. You focus on bringing the human potential out of your teams, right? I know you both do that. How do you create the conditions in your company and on your teams to challenge orthodoxy, to challenge status quo, to recommend a boldly different idea? Um, You know, it's a bit of a disease in big companies that we don't have enough of that. Mm So how do you do that? How do you create those conditions? Go, yeah, go ahead. Start. Um, a couple of thoughts um, and a, a couple of examples. I think, um, I do think it starts at the top at making, creating an environment where people feel comfortable bringing up their ideas. Um, I do think it's important to, when, that, when those things happen, to celebrate those examples. Um, and, uh, you know, I... I'm a big believer that those that are closest to the consumer and to the guest are probably the ones who know better anyway. Um, my point of view on risk is um, it's not a black and white for me. Um, whether or not to take risk to me should be grounded in first and foremost to the consumer insight. It's not just swing for the fences for the sake of swinging for the fences. It's about having a really relevant, compelling uh, insight that you don't think your competition has that warrants you taking a different direction. And I can give you an example, and I would use our holiday campaign as an example. It's um, something that we've done for many years. It it's really celebrates um, families, and we talked a lot about the reason for the season or kids, and it has all these toys. It's, um, it's really joyful, and um, it really focuses on one of the key categories for retail in the fourth quarter, which is toys. Um, it, we test our advertising once it's in market, we get results. Every year it's been getting better and better and better. We test it relative to competition and across the retail sector, it was by far the highest performing campaign. And then this year, the team came and they said, we wanna change it. And you're like, oh my gosh, we <laughs> wanna change it. And you know, the kind of, I go back to the principles of brand management of like continuity and like all these things like we've got something that's working. It's a four week window. We just have to nail it. Are you sure you want to change it? But they did because they saw in the research that we had a relevancy issue. 
it was a really high-performing creative among households that had kids but not so much with empty nesters, not so much with singles, not so much with the whole rest of Mm -hmm. who shops at Target. And because we are a brand about inclusivity and we are about a place for everyone to feel welcome, we should evolve. And it was based on that insight of like, we could be way more inclusive. So this season, this past season, we celebrated we um, the the season with not just Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa, but really um, a whole series of big and small moments. We cast about 150 people, and all of the content that we that we produced over the eight week window, um, because we wanted everyone to see themselves in the work. Um, and I'm really proud that that scored even better than anything that we've ever done before. Um, and so, you know what? It's not risk for the sake of risk. It's not change for the sake of change. To me, it has to be grounded in um, a business problem you're solving for and rooted. the solution is rooted in a deep consumer insight. I mean, I would just, Jeff, I, I would just build on that, and this is going to sound like a little simple tip, but I've just learned the more you ask people, what else? Do you have any other ideas? Is there something that stood in the way from what you really wanted to do? I mean, a lot of times when people are asked, that you understand that there is a different path they wish they could have taken. And as basic as that sounds, I've just found that when people get stuck, there's a reason. Sometimes it's their boss, sometimes it's a feeling, you know, no one will let us do this. And I always ask, well, who won't let you? And no one can ever name anyone, right? It's just, <laughs> a, it's just a sense that it's not possible. And just one-on-one when you sit down with people and say, what if we did this? Now, I think it starts at the top and it's got to be strategic and grounded in insight. But then that final breakthrough sometimes is just not just saying give people permission and not just celebrating it when it happens, but really asking people, what if we did this or what's standing in the way or did you really do everything you dreamed of? You learned different things. Let's go back to the audience. Anyone have a burning question? Want to follow up on anything we've talked about? Avi Inglay from AT&T. Um, when you think about the relationships across the C-suite, what are the three or four that you consider most critical and why? What is the nature of the relationship you have with the others? Uh, for, start for, with that, Jeff. Yeah, for me, I think it, there's probably moments in how it evolves. For me right now, it's CFO and my CHRO. And I pick those two first, just given the nature of the work and where we're at and how much focus we're putting on talent and culture as an organization. Rick? Um, I mean, look, I I, uh, partner across the um, C-suite, probably the most with what I would refer to as the commercial roles within the C-suite. So if you think about uh, marketing, merchandising, store ops, because we're sort of on the front end of reaching the guest and driving the revenue, that's probably where I spend the most time. Um, but you know, the CFO plays a critical role when we're setting our budgets and we're looking at forecasts and we're talking about performance. CHRO plays um, a huge role in building culture and as we're talking about talent. So it's, um, it depends, this is the short answer. Yeah, I think it is a bit situational. You know, when I came in at P&G, R&D and marketing were at odds. So that can't be. We've got to be together. So the R&D head and myself showed up together a lot. And that made a very, very big difference in our innovation. Yeah. I think it's a bit situational. Anyone else? Questions from the audience before 
Yes. David from Walmart. Uh, and uh, I had the question before you said those are for topics, but we, we truly live in every, everything is political. Everything is divided. Yeah. You both serve customers on every part of the aisle. What is our role in unifying? Yeah. And do we have one? And I feel like a lot of times our customers expect it, but when you pick one, they really don't because yeah, yeah. you picked one. So what is our role and how do we do it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I, so this, if all the things I've had to learn and the hard things that I do in my new role, this is probably the hardest one, no doubt. I mean, as a, as a business, we are intimately connected to the federal government and state governments. The issues we have span all sides. When the president was elected, he literally named us saying, I'm going to make taxes so simple, I'll put H&R Block out of business. And I'm using the wrong hands. And on the far left side, you know, there are certain candidates that believe the government should do your taxes. So we are in the middle of this argument in every way. And I will tell you what I have to do is set my personal beliefs 100% aside, represent the best interest of the company, and that is to play it down the middle. And it's really hard on a day-to-day -day basis as an individual. You know, we have at least one office in every congressional district in America. We literally serve everyone. And even as it relates to culture, we were talking about this at lunch, you know, as a company, we have been a relatively conservative company. We're, you know, a risk avoidance company at, at our core. And when I first got to H&R Block, we really didn't have any programming around diversity and inclusion. And it didn't seem to be missing for people. But those are places where I leaned in. We have absolutely brought forward what we call belonging at Block. We got a perfect score with HRC this year. I've personally signed the CEO Diversity and Action Pledge. So as it relates to team and culture, we are absolutely not shying away from things that could be viewed as political. But as it relates to consumers, we do play it down the middle because of the nature of the governments that we have to work so closely with. Yeah, I mean, just to build a little bit on that, I, I, um, I agree. And I think in a similar situation, we serve really you know, rural to urban, East Coast all the way, West Coast, Midwest. It's um, all different ages and um, we want everyone to feel like when they come to Target that they feel you know welcomed and respected regardless of who they are um, and so we have to oftentimes think a lot about what that means and you know I'll give you an example just this weekend I got two letters um, from a guest uh, two different guests suggesting that I was being a racist and that I was being a racist because we were running some content for Black History Month and we had highlighted some African-American founders of companies, entrepreneurs, and well, we interviewed them and they talk about their experience and what it means to them. And in one of the pieces of content, uh, the woman says, you know, this is bigger. She's actually in a Target store standing in front of an end cap of her product. And she says, you know, this is bigger than just me. This is for the next little black girl to let her know that she can do this. And I got two letters over the weekend saying, why did you have to say that little black girl? Why couldn't you have said for anybody um, and it's like, well, it's not, you know, we weren't trying to be exclusionary, you know, and, um, but the, everything, it can become a lightning rod. 
And so you have to literally pause and say, is this, I mean, my agenda and, or is this the right thing to do for our guests? And I feel, and I still do, it's the right thing to do for our guests. We're not pulling that copy. It's still running. Um, and by the way, the sentiment is incredibly strong. Um, at 86%, I pulled that number. <laughs> I pulled that number for the CEO this morning. Um, but that's what you got to do. You know, you have to be able to think of, is it my agenda or is this the right thing to do for our consumer, for our guest? The one last thing I would say that I, I think is something that I'm thinking a lot about um, is in marketing historically, we've spent so much time trying to find out what's the differences. How do we segment? How do we create clusters? What do we pull them apart? Um, I am really interested in the idea of universal truth and what can bring us together. And I think things like bringing joy to all family is something that everybody can nod their head and say, I want to be a part of that. And I do believe as marketers, we can actually elevate the conversation to something much bigger than what it makes us different. I'm going to end on one question for each one of these guys. I'm going to ask them to ask the other a question I should have asked or that you're interested in because you know each other and you know each other very well. So I'd like you to have the final question. Rick, you for Jeff. Jeff, you for Rick. And since you're the CEO, oh, no. I'm going to start with you. <laughs> I would have so many personal questions for him since we're just trying to catch up. But I mean, let's make it a little personal and work. So. Uh, what's it like for you now being the senior member of the leadership team and have been through such a transition of your peers at Target? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know. So to be clear, there's been a lot of turnover yes. and you're a senior person now and you're in the job four years. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, they talk about turnover with CMOs. There's turnover in the C-suite. I mean, <laughs> it happens across the board. Um, and, you know, I came in as the new person. And, you know, like I said, I didn't have the confidence. I knew it was a make or break moment. Um, fast forward four years, half of the C-suite has turned over. And I'm now all of a sudden the veteran. Um, <laughs> and I think um, we just had a talent review meeting for four hours with across the C-suite. And... Uh, um, it's easy to forget how the new members of a C-suite feel. Mm -hmm. And so I circled back afterwards to talk to a couple just to say like, how do you think that went? Or, right. and because you just take it for granted now. And all those feelings I had of not being confident and being a little nervous in those conversations, or should I say it, should I not say it? Wanting a little bit of feedback, which you never get feedback in the C-suite, just heads up. Um, <laughs> Now I feel like I can play that role. Yeah. So now I can circle back and say to some of the new people, like, I'm really glad you said that. That, that helped the conversation move along. Which goes right back to how you build relationships and collaboration. Yeah. Yep. That's yep. awesome. So Rick, you have the final question, and it's directed to Jeff. What's the hardest thing about being a CEO? Uh, <laughs> so many things. I mean, I think I like to be Jeff, not be the CEO. And I think one of the hardest things about being in this role is it is fundamentally different from being in the CMO role in terms of the way people treat you. You don't really ever know the truth. You have to search way harder to get answers to things. Your jokes are funnier. You're more handsome. <laughs> it's just like all of a sudden you're treated in a way that um, is just not who I am as a person. Uh, and that's uncomfortable uh, a lot. I think from a learning perspective, the hardest thing is just the capital markets and transitioning shareholder bases. And, you know, when you've had a chance to go to investor meetings in your roles and you're participating in those, 
And now you're the one in the seat that has to answer every hard question about strategy and capital allocation and betting against your industry and why should we believe. I mean, that requires an incredible amount of confidence to, ha to have conviction of your plans. And that's hard and, and brand new muscle. Yeah. Great questions, guys. Yeah, great you questions. should do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> So let's give a warm thank you to Jeff and Rick for that fabulous dialogue. Thank you very much. Awesome. That was my conversation with Rick and Jeff. I loved everything about this conversation, but what I especially liked was how they talked about their habits they use to stay close to their teams and to their customers. This interview was just filled with nuggets of leadership and marketing excellence. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.